What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That's the key question that has to be asked, has to be answered in every teaching, discipleship, mentoring situation in the church of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of expository preaching? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of biblical counseling? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of mentoring another believer and living out our faith in Christ? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of directing the church of Jesus Christ? And in that light, certainly for all leaders in the church of Christ, from those simply leading by mentoring one other person all the way up to the elders of the church, What does the Bible say has to inform all we do and how we disciple, how we teach, how we function? Last week, we started sort of a mini-series within our series on the church's shepherds. And this mini-series concerns the roles of the vocational and the volunteer shepherds of the church. And we made a case that the New Testament allows for both with some leeway and variety as is needed. Next week, we'll look specifically at the role of the vocational, the the paid shepherds of the church. But today, I want to examine specifically the volunteer shepherds, specifically full elders. But really, I think the principles we'll look at today will apply across the board to anyone leading in any shepherding and spiritual care capacity. And the key question as we go through this is, what does the Bible say? We're laying down a solid foundation for us here at Grace Bible Church. I'm praying that this foundation lasts for many decades to come. That as we all compositely understand what the church's shepherds are to be about, that we're now helped in how Christ desires the whole church to function. And so turn once again to 1 Timothy 3.1. We'll be here for a moment and then we'll go to a, a different text in the New Testament. And in 1 Timothy 3.1, we'll focus in on one word this morning. 1 Timothy 3.1, I'm praying that this really just impacts you as, as we read this every week. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. One more time, and I'll emphasize our one word for this morning. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's our important word for this morning, anyone. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's a noble thing. Now, it's encouraging to me that the church is looking for men to aspire in the church. That Anyone doesn't mean anyone is qualified. It does mean, though, that the field is open. No one is automatically disqualified at the beginning, except maybe in a few very rare cases. And in fact, the anyone should inspire all of us as men, in particular in the church, at least if not aspiring to the office of overseer, to aspire to the character of an elder, to the character of an overseer. And so for our purposes today, we're reminded from last week that anyone can include the volunteer shepherd who has been trained, tested, and approved by other qualified shepherds. And so we want to be very specific today. What is the role of the volunteer shepherd? Sometimes we use the the term lay elder. That's maybe a little more familiar to you. 
And primarily, we want to make certain that the question, what does the Bible say, stays at the forefront of our consideration of this topic because, not coincidentally, the main role of the volunteer shepherd is to make sure that the question, what does the Bible say, is always the most important question we ask. And so it's not only our method, it is the goal. And we'll touch on that idea of what does the Bible say a little bit more as we progress this morning. But first, I want to give you two lists to kind of keep uh, our minds in the right place. The first one I'll give you now, and the next one I'll give you later. These lists were both created by the current chairman of the eldership at Grace Community Church, a man I've mentioned before, Chris Hamilton. He has made a study of, he's done writing on, and, and lectured on being an exemplary volunteer elder, a lay elder. Now, the first list comes from a lecture that I sat in where he was teaching a number of years ago. And his first list is called, this is his, not mine, Qualities of a Lousy Lay Elder. Now, and frankly, this list applies to really any church leader. It's a short list, 17 qualities of a lousy lay elder. I've shortened it down to 12. Um, But here's his list. I'll, I'll give you 12 of them. Qualities of a lousy lay elder. He is chronically negative. He's chronically negative. He's constantly looking for problems without bringing viable solutions. He's great at pointing out challenges, but he doesn't help meet that challenge. Um, He is what John MacArthur calls the guy who sees the meadow muffins in the meadow. That's all he sees. The second quality, he is habitually divisive. He's habitually divisive. Instead of inspiring unity, he's sowing the seeds of division. He's pulling people apart, not bringing them together. Third quality of a lousy lay elder, he's stubbornly unsubmissive. He's stubbornly unsubmissive. Nobody in church leadership gets their way all the time. And this man is the one who's not submissive to other elders. He can't defer to others. He has to have everything his way. He won't support others' ideas if he's not in complete agreement. The fourth quality that Chris Hamilton gave, he's antagonistic toward pastors. Is antagonistic toward pastors, that he views his primary role as being critical toward the formally trained vocational pastors, making sure that they're regularly discouraged and put in their place. That's what he does. By the way, this is usually accompanied by not doing the work of shepherding himself, and he gets reduced to a Monday morning quarterback instead of doing the work. A fifth quality of a potentially lousy lay elder, he's submissive to his wife. He's submissive to his wife, and here's how this works. He takes elder issues to his wife for a second meeting. He doesn't keep church business confidential. He comes back to another meeting, and he says, I've been giving this more thought, which is code language for my wife made me come back and change my mind. And trust me, that can be an issue. A sixth quality of a lousy lay elder, unhealthy ownership. He treats the church like it's his church. Whose church is this? This is Christ's. We are stewards only. And this creates a separation of himself from the life of the sheep. He views himself now no longer as one of the sheep who also happens to be a shepherd. But now the members are employees of a corporation that exists to make him look good. Another quality, financial influence in order to control He uses financial influence as a silent manipulation. Statements like, if we go this direction, my giving's going down. Or the opposite. Uh, I'm giving a large sum of money toward this pet project that I really want to see happen. That's manipulation to control. On the other side, there's an eighth quality. He may be a guy who makes peace at all costs. 
that he's passive and he won't take a stand. He's constantly just trying to keep the peace. He agrees with the most powerful person in the mo- at the moment. And he's passive. That's not helpful. You want to know what I love about our volunteer elders? I have personally heard every one of them stand alone and say, hang on, we need to talk about this more. That's a good sign. We don't have any elders who just go along with everything because it's easier. There's a ninth quality of a lousy lay elder. He undermines pastoral authority and unity. How does this most often happen? According to Chris Hamilton, he is the guy who feels the need to correct the sermon every week with others. He encourages disunity instead of challenging church members to listen more humbly with learners' hearts. There's a tenth quality. He treats his position politically. He treats his position politically. He tries to gain people in the church on his side as if there are factions, and and he creates these factions. He becomes a politician rather than the purveyor of truth. This is the guy who's unafraid to have secret meetings to further his own agenda. And you think, oh, that would never happen in the church. That happens in churches all the time. On our leadership team, we warn against what we call meetings after the meetings. There's an 11th quality. He pits sheep against each other with habitual gossip that he listens to or participates in Ephesians 4.29, corrupting talk, which is solely for the purpose of denigrating others, not pointing people towards shepherding or helping. That's a means of gaining power because now one can say to other leaders, well, certain people are saying such and such. Whenever anybody comes to me as the pastor and says certain people are saying things, my first question is, who is it? Well, I don't want to say, then we're done talking about it because you're, that's an assertion of power. And then Chris's words were in the, in the 12th one I'll give. I won't give the other five. He says, beware of, quote, winsome and wealthy. Beware of winsome and wealthy, that this is the man who has undue influence because of personality and possessions. He has a natural influence that is not spiritual, but it's worldly in nature. Now, there's nothing wrong with great generosity. We might even call it joyful generosity, to coin a phrase, but not as a means of controlling influence. And so to avoid these pitfalls, and every one of these are, are, are not theoretical, they're based in experiences that have actually happened To avoid these pitfalls, it's our duty to stay on track and ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say concerning the monumental responsibility of being a volunteer shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ? And I have to say this, and you know this, no church leader, whether volunteer or vocational, has it all figured out, nor are we infallible. I have a lot of friends who are pastors. I have have friends who are pastors in their late 70s. And one man told me, I feel like I'm just now figuring this thing out. And he's just about done. And so all leaders ought to fall on the mercy of Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, where he says in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So we're all growing. We're all learning. I'll do Chris's second list near the end of our time together as an application. We'll do that one at the end. But for the rest of our time... What I'd like to do is examine the man who really exemplifies what a model volunteer shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ ought to be. And his name is Philemon. I'd like to have you turn to the little book of Philemon, just a few pages over. This is Paul's little letter addressed to this man. And and since we're looking at a good chunk of the whole letter, I want to remind you of the context if you haven't been in Philemon in a while. 
Philemon was written at the same time as the book of Colossians because it was written to the same people. This is a personal letter, Paul's shortest letter. It's a personal letter to Philemon, but it's addressed in verse 2, not only to Philemon, but also to the church in your house. And so it was delivered literally at the same time as the letter to the Colossians. It's written to an individual in the Colossian church, but also to the whole church. There's three major players in this letter. The first one is Paul himself. He's not just the author of the letter, but he has a major relationship with the other two uh, key players here. The second major player is Philemon, the one to whom the letter is addressed. He's a person of means. He has money. He's a slave owner. He has a large enough home to host an entire church in his home. He's able to receive guests. He has multiple guest rooms, apparently, according to verse 22. Where did Philemon come from? Well, he lived in the city of Colossae, but he had, he had been led to faith by the apostle Paul himself, probably while Paul was in Ephesus, and Philemon had happened to be there. He likely came to faith in Christ at the same time as a man named Epaphras, who was probably the guy who planted the church in the city of Colossae. And so you have Philemon, this man of means, who is, a, who is big time in the church here and big time in the city as well. And you have the third major player, Onesimus. Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves, but he was a runaway slave. And he had apparently stolen either money or goods from Philemon, kind of as his parting gift to himself on the way out the door, apparently. And the whole issue of the letter is basically the fact that Onesimus has become a believer in Christ and Paul is imploring Philemon to forgive him now for what he did. And in fact, I just want to take a a couple of seconds here to talk about the fact that slavery is in here and it is central to this issue. I know that's a hot topic today, so let me just make a few comments about this. First of all, first century slavery bears very little resemblance to the American slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries, which we're so familiar. They're not really alike at all. Uh, Slavery in the first century wasn't based on race or nationality. There were slaves in every nation in the known world. Slaves were treated in a wide variety of ways. It ranged from horrible, abusive, terrible, inhumane treatment all the way to being treated like a valued and respected lifelong employee and everything in between. In fact, it wasn't uncommon to sell yourself into slavery either to pay off some debts or just to get a job. Slaves weren't bound by a common race or nationality, so there was never really a unifying Slaves Unite movement in the centuries even before Christ. The New Testament never condones slavery, nor does it ever present a social gospel that says that Christ came to free slaves. It doesn't present that at all. What the New Testament does present is a gospel that frees us from the slavery of sin. And in fact, simply told slaves that if you're in Christ, be the best slave there is. If you're a master in Christ, be the best master you can be. There's not a sense of the gospel coming to change social conventions because they're all temporary anyway. But the gospel is the means to end slavery in a very real sense because now through Christ, the the dividing walls of social distinction are totally broken down. All men and women are sinners. All men and women are in need of a savior. And in the church, those artificial distinctions disappear. They disappear. Now, they, they still have a function in the world, A slave and a slave owner may function in that fashion, but in Christ they're equal and they're brothers in the Lord. 
And by God's providence, Onesimus ran away as an unbelieving, probably young boy, probably in his, in his teen years, and he happened to come across a guy who was under house arrest in Rome. And this guy was named Paul. Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus came to faith in Christ through Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul is speaking to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In other words, he led him to faith in Christ. Now, why does this letter have to be written? Well, we have a big problem here. Onesimus should return to Philemon. But Philemon would have every legal right to inflict punishment, even up to and including the death penalty. And to demand restitution, which Onesimus undoubtedly didn't have. He probably spent everything that he had stolen. And so Paul writes to Philemon to urge him to show grace and to show forgiveness. But Paul's letter to Philemon reveals much about the character of Philemon himself. And that's what I'd like to focus on here. Was he a leader in the church? I think evidence points pretty strongly in the direction that he was. Let me just show you a few reasons that Philemon may likely have been a leader or a volunteer elder even in the church at Colossae. First of all, verse 2 says that the church met in his house. The local church at Colossae, or at least one part of it, uh, met in Philemon's home. He was also wealthy enough to have guest rooms, wealthy enough to own slaves. What does this mean? It means he was tied down to a specific location. He wasn't a missionary of any kind. And he very likely was either a city official of some sort, given this nice home, or he was a business owner. We would lean probably more toward the business owner side because he had come to faith in Christ traveling to Ephesus, likely as a businessman. Another piece of evidence here, verse 5 indicates Philemon was deeply involved with shepherding, quote, all the saints. He had involvement with the whole church. Third piece of evidence, probably the strongest piece, Paul calls him, in verse 1, our beloved fellow worker. Our fellow workers, one word in Greek, soon ergos, a fellow worker is all it means. And that's a term reserved in all of Paul's letters only for men who work in the gospel ministry, only for them. In fact, the last couple of verses of Philemon, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Same word. Never does Paul call just a regular church member a fellow worker. And so Philemon is in this small group of fellow workers, and yet he seems to have a secular life outside the life of the church. What does that make him? Most likely a volunteer elder, a volunteer leader of some sort. So I think we're on pretty safe ground using Philemon as an example. Even if he's not exactly an elder, what we're going to see is that he sets the example of a guy who should be one. Paul clearly thinks much of Philemon, as we'll see. And so just briefly, I'd like to use this little letter here to show you six qualities of an effective volunteer elder. Six qualities of an effective volunteer elder. And again, we're laying a long foundation here so that when we get to 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, all the qualifications of an elder, they'll make total sense. They'll, they'll fit very easily on that foundation. But six qualities of an effective volunteer elder. The first quality, he is a loving family man. He's a loving family man. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, 
our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who are these people? Apphia and Archippus, some feel that this is Philemon's family, his wife and his son. There's probably a higher probability that Apphia is his wife. Archippus is called a fellow soldier. That's the same term applied to Epaphras or Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. Colossians 4.17, Paul says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. In other words, he is a teaching elder in the church. Archippus is. He's a teaching pastor, probably alongside Epaphras, who founded the church. Now, the case for Apphia being Philemon's wife is stronger than the case for Archippus being his son. But in either case, there's definite clues that Philemon enjoyed and cultivated a loving family life. What are the clues? Well, first of all, the fact that Paul addresses Philemon and Apphia together indicates his clear view of them as a close unit. And so the case for her being his wife is very good. Here's another clue that he cultivated and enjoyed a loving family life. The church met in his house. That would not happen in the midst of, of strife in the family and conflict happening. Um, how do you like having guests in your home when there's terrible things happening in your family? We don't do it. Another clue, Philemon spent time loving all the saints. And again, that can't be done effectively if the home fires are sputtering and gasping for air. And one more clue, Paul felt comfortable enough to ask Philemon to prepare a guest room for him for his hopeful eventual arrival in Colossae in verse 22. That doesn't happen in a household of strife and conflict. Nobody wants to be a part of that. Now, just to be clear, having a wife and family are not in and of themselves qualifications for eldership in the church. Paul himself had neither. But the leader with a wife and family can be such a powerful influence on other believers. And why is this? Well, because his love for his family, if that's shown and that's demonstrated, how much of our Christian life is lived at home? A really good chunk of it. It's lived before our family. It's lived in our family. In fact, we'll see back in 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a qualification for eldership that you have a loving family that is obedient and so forth. This is the foundational building block of the church. And can I put it this way? A church with obedient families is most likely a healthy church as a whole. You show me a church with a bunch of families that are falling apart, the church itself is not healthy either. And so this is a man who demonstrates that his faith, his faith and his life aren't somehow separated. That the gospel of Christ, which has also transformed him, has also transformed how he views and lives with his family. Let me put it this way. He's the same guy in the church as he is at home. He's the same guy. Here's a second quality that Philemon shows. Second quality of a good volunteer elder. He's an impactful man. He's an impactful man. Verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul thanks God always for Philemon. There's a There's a positivity here a depth of affection and joy for this man he gives two reasons for his thankfulness for philemon in verse five because i hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the lord jesus and for all the saints paul says he's heard of these things he's received up-to-date information on the church probably from epaphras traveling to rome but what are the two reasons 
that he is rejoicing here and thanking God, love for the saints and faith toward the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 5 is a little tough to understand because it's constructed poetically. Love for all the saints with faith toward the Lord Jesus stuck right there in the middle. That's just a poetic construction. And I think Paul's reasoning here is very clear. The intertwined relationship of the two, faith toward Christ causes love toward the saints. And so Paul simply mingles them. And it's a very unusual phrase he used. He doesn't say, we we would expect him to say faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he says faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a rarely used phrase, and it's really talking about loyalty, that your faith is, is pointed toward Christ. It's at him. You're looking at him. Your eyes are on him. And what's the result? You love the saints. Pretty good lesson right there. Love for Christ, love for Christ, love for Christ translates into love for the church. And so Philemon's depth of loyalty and fidelity toward Christ has expressed itself in love for all the saints. And this has been obvious enough that people have been talking positively about Philemon behind his back. Paul, you gotta, you gotta see this guy. He's just loving the church and he loves Christ. But how did he love the saints? How did he do this? Well, verse 6 gives us a clue. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He says, and I pray that. It'd be a little more precise to translate that in order that, not that I pray that, that there's a result of Philemon's love for the saints. What does Paul mean by this mysterious phrase, the sharing of your faith or the partnership of your faith can be translated as well? Well, let the context guide us. I have heard one or two sermons on personal evangelism from Philemon verse 6, the sharing of your faith, and and I appreciate that. But that's a case of uh, of the right application from the wrong text. And what do I mean by that? Well, the context guides us, the proper translation, in order that the sharing of your faith, what does that mean? It means that Philemon's love for the saints is repeated in verse 6 with the phrase sharing of your faith. Why can this not be talking about personal evangelism? Because Philemon is sharing his faith with believers. This doesn't mean that he is explaining the gospel to believers, although he may be doing that as well. It means that whatever is happening in his life because of his faith in Christ, he is sharing this. He's sharing his life. He's doing something. Now, we're not told exactly what that something is. We just know that he's impacting all the saints. He's sharing with them. But we get a couple of clues. Whatever he was doing was something to love all the saints, every member of the church. We also know it was something, according to verse 7, that refreshed their hearts Spiritually, there is an internal impact on the church. And we have already said that the church in Colossae met in his home. So whatever he was doing that was connected to those things that we know of, he was providing a wonderful place for the believers to meet. He was apparently very generous with the saints. We can make that supposition here. It's very possible that he was a major support for the preaching of the word. He may have had a role in supporting both Epaphras and Archippus, helping fund the refreshing teaching of the gospel. 
A number of years ago, I did some research on how seminaries have gotten started in the United States over the past 200 years. And I found a commonality that very often the founding uh, president or the founding theologian or pastor of a seminary was approached by a wealthy man who said, here's a million dollars, go train men. That's what Philemon was. He was, he was eager to see the church built up. He was known in the church as generous. He was clearly contagious in his joy. He was uplifting. He was encouraging. And what was the result of Philemon's generous sharing, living out his faith in, in generosity and in spiritual refreshment to all the saints? The result, verse 6, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Well, what does that mean? That's a mouthful. Well, we can be helped and interpret this by Colossians 1, 9, and 10, which is very similar. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray from you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What are the commonalities between those two? The knowledge refers to the knowledge gained by the reader of the letter. That's Philemon in this case. It's not just general knowledge, but it's knowledge of every good thing. According to Colossians 1, what is every good thing? How to know the will of God. Those are good things. Increasing the knowledge of God isn't just talking about adding intellectual facts to your reservoir of understanding. This is now talking about gaining experiential insight into God of His grace and His mercy. And what this has done, or where this has come from, rather, is the fact that Philemon has shared his life. He has demonstrated with a mature believer in Christ what his life looks like. He shared his faith. Now, track with me here for a moment. The full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. What are the good things that are in us? First of all, it's a better translation to say the good things that are in Christ. What is that? The full knowledge of every good thing in the context of Philemon being a loving believer who literally loved every saint in the church. It is the ability to love with the love of God. It is the ability to give grace and to give generosity and to give sacrifice to everyone around you. So in other words, and I'm putting these pieces of the puzzle together now, let's put this all together. Putting verses 5 and 6 together, Paul is saying that because of Philemon's love and his generosity, his example to the saints, the sharing of his faith, he has gained full knowledge of the overwhelming joy that God has in loving us He's experienced the elation of a heart that is just liberal to give, liberal in the ministry. In other words, Philemon's faith was contagious and everybody wanted to be like him. God has demonstrated toward us love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And Paul's saying, Philemon, you're demonstrating these fruits of the Spirit and we're seeing the immense capacity that we have to love one another because of Christ. How many negative people does it take to cast a cloud over a room? About one. How many people like Philemon does it take to change a church? One. Just one. In fact, look at verse 7 with me. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
Paul has received this report about Philemon. He led to faith in Christ himself years earlier, and it thrills him to hear that, that Philemon is now living this generous, loving Christian life. And Paul's encouragement is that Philemon has refreshed the church with his love. That's his legacy. That's his modus operandi. That's the way he works. That's the way he rolls. Everybody around him is made better because of his encouragement. What does it mean to refresh? This is speaking of the revitalization of the inner man. Oh, that's my prayer for every one of you every Lord's Day, that you speak to one or two people that just say just enough to refresh you. As much as I would love to believe that a sermon that I preach is the most important thing that happens to you on a Sunday, very often the most important thing that happens to you on a Sunday is a kind word that another said to you and said, I'm praying for you, just wanted you to know. And that lifts our hearts up. I don't know what Paul was told, but I'll bet it went something like this. Paul, you know that the church is meeting in Philemon's house, right? Every week. His staff feed the church on Sundays. And when so-and-so was sick and, and couldn't work, Philemon kept his family fed until he got back on his feet. He's an encourager. Everybody's reassured and heartened when he gets done talking to them. He loves the fellowship of the saints. He's always encouraging us to get together. His doors are continually open. He prays for everyone in the church. He keeps up with what's happening in people's lives. He's kind. He sets an example for the other men. And he makes sure that our pastors, Epaphras and Archippus, are taken care of in order to be able to teach the saints. How thrilling that is to hear. Philemon was a gold mine of encouragement, a gold mine of joy. He was a leader by example, and he was an impactful man just by his life. Not only was Philemon a loving family man and an impactful man, I'll give you a third quality, he was a supportive man. He was a supportive man. Verse 7 once again, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Now Paul wasn't the pastor of the church at Colossae, He had led to Christ Epaphras, who was likely one of the teaching pastors. And Paul did have unique authority over the church as an apostle. But compare Paul's joy and comfort that he has in Philemon to the larger reality of his ministry. In addition to the physical suffering that Paul endured for the sake of the ministry, he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.28, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Daily pressure, daily anxiety for the church of Jesus Christ. There was never, ever a day in which Paul didn't have a weight of concern and responsibility for the gospel ministry. And it's no wonder when you have some churches, like, for example, the church of Galatia, Galatians 1.6, Paul wrote, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and they're turning to a different gospel. How disheartening. Or you have the church at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 3, 1, or 1, 3 and 4, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What was happening in Ephesus? You had a bunch of elders all teaching different things. And so Paul turns to Philemon and just goes, oh, What a relief, what a joy, what a comfort. Philemon was caused to have Paul's concern for the church reduced, not increased. 
Philemon probably wasn't the main Bible teacher of the church, but boy, he did everything in his power to make sure that it happened, to facilitate the work of the ministry, to put the pieces in place to make the ministry of the word happen. In other words, largely because of Philemon, Paul could rest more easily in his concerns for Colossae. And yes, they did have their share of challenges, but not nearly to the degree that other churches did. And Philemon wasn't one of those challenges. A number of years ago, I wrote a little book called Shattered Shepherds. And this book was designed to help vocational pastors through ministry disasters. And over the last few years, I've had quite a few men contact me and just talk about their their situation. I had a had a man at a shepherd's conference a number of years ago with the thickest New Zealand accent I've ever heard in my life, just came and literally sobbed on my shoulder with this torn up copy of Shattered Shepherds in his hand. He'd been through just this horrible situation. But I've gotten to talk to a lot of these men over the years when they get in contact with me. And I always ask them, what, what are some of the factors that led to the demise of your ministry? And you know, I'm, almost every time, one of the factors is unsupportive, antagonistic volunteer elders that that was the issue with them but paul says you're not like that philemon instead of being burdened paul has been given joy and comfort because of his faithfulness and his support i'll give you a fourth quality and this one might seem odd in a leader but philemon is a submissive man he's a submissive man that might seem odd for a leader but it's essential because no one gets their way all the time and the one who insists on his way all the time or, or makes a fuss every time he doesn't get his way, that's harmful to the church. What was Philemon like? Well, there's a long section here that shows his character. Verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. By the way, that's one of the rare examples of a joke in the Bible, because Onesimus means useful. He used to be useless, but now he's Onesimus. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf, during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul didn't have to be stern. He didn't have to pull rank. He didn't have to give a command. Why? Because he had confidence that Philemon would swallow his so-called rights to have Onesimus punished and instead show grace. And now Paul sweetens the deal concerning whatever Onesimus stole from Philemon. Verse 18, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. In other words, send me a bill. You think that Paul is going to get a bill from Philemon for whatever Onesimus owes? Probably not. Because Paul follows it up by saying in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he adds, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. I won't mention the fact that I led you to faith in Christ. What did he just do? He just mentioned it. Genius leadership. 
But ultimately, look at Paul's view of Philemon, why he trusted him. Verse 21, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Not only will Philemon submit to Paul's wishes, he's going to go above and beyond. When I preached through Philemon a number of years ago, we made the case that not only did Philemon free uh, Onesimus as a slave, no longer as a slave, but he funded his ministry. And we found out that many, many years later, Onesimus was a pastor at the church of Ephesus. So Philemon went above and beyond. And Paul is confident of this. Listen, there is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for volunteer elders who have to control, who have to have their way all the time. This is a weight around the ankles of the church. It's a poison which can't continue if the church is to be truly effective. An elder must be a man who can submit, who can defer. But why was Paul confident in Philemon? Because he was confident in Philemon's motivation. What was his motivation? That brings us to our fifth quality. He is a Christ-honoring man. He's a Christ-honoring man. Back in verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, Paul just went from saying, I'll repay anything, and in about two seconds twisted it. I think you should do something for me. That's amazing. And Philemon must have read that and go, what what just happened here? I don't understand. Yes, Paul is asking in no uncertain terms for a positive response from Philemon, but he says the magic words. In the Lord and in Christ. You see, when you tell an ungodly man, do what is right because it pleases Christ, those words fall on deaf ears and are immediately followed up with, yeah, but... But when you tell a godly man, do what is right because it pleases Christ, he snaps into action. That's all he needs to hear. Do this because it pleases the Lord. Yes, sir. Because that's our goal. And in fact, look how saturated in Christ this short letter is. Look back at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us should be in Christ for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, accordingly I am bold enough in Christ. Verse 9, also for Christ. All the way in verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you got the leather of Philemon wet and wrung it out, in Christ goes everywhere. Over and over again, Christ, 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 Christ. No wonder Paul tells the Colossian church, which heard that leather at the same time as this one, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, what? In Christ. That's the type of man the church needs, a Christ-honoring man, one who cares deeply and yearns to know the will of God for the sake of Christ and for the sake of His bride, not for any personal gain. We'll do one more, a sixth quality. He is a word-filled man. A quality lay elder is a word-filled man. 
Now, since Philemon was central to the life and the vibrancy of the Colossian church, we can derive this principle from Paul's letters, letter to the Colossians, which was delivered to them at the same time. I don't have time to have you turn there, but just listen to Paul's emphasis with the church. Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Colossians 1.25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I've got to tell you, one of the biggest fallacies, one of the biggest potholes that church leadership can step into is that the wisdom that they bring from the world is the primary qualifying factor for them. Now, to be certain, it's helpful in very practical and administrative things. For example, all of our volunteer elders are experienced in money matters, so the financial management of Grace Bible Church is, is, is run by tremendously gifted men. You have no worries there. And of course, all of them have the benefit of decades of following Christ and living life, and there is a very definite sense in which all elders are to be an example that you may look to. But the fallacy that wisdom from the world is a qualifier, that starts to happen when elders begin to rely on practical experience to make spiritual decisions or on experience to form even positions or arguments based on anything other than what Scripture says of separating decision-making from the Bible, of beginning all of our sentences with, well, I think. In fact, to make this even a stronger case, an elder who makes assertions of truth or a position or a direction without giving a sound biblical argument is the mark of what? Of a false teacher. Is it possible for false teachers to be Believers, 1 Timothy 1, Alexander and Hymenaeus have given them over to Satan. They may be taught to blaspheme. You're not, not to blaspheme. They're, they're not taught not to blaspheme because they're unbelievers, because they're believers. And so it's imperative that we're careful in directing our church. Years ago in one of my pastoral ministry classes with Dr. Alex Montoya, <clears throat> Dr. Montoya, you don't know this, but he sits on this shoulder right here every Sunday Scares me to death, just like he did in seminary. But he said this. The ultimate downfall of a church is pretty certain when the elders start making decisions based on opinion, personality, or personal preference. If they are united, the whole church will fail. If they are split, the church may split. And if they are split long enough, you may experience fight or flight as the pastor. That's based on 45 years of pastoral experience that he gave. So it's important that elders understand the basics of forming a biblical position. I, I think I'm confident it'll be useful for you, for me to share this with you. I'd like to give you a short outline of what that looks like so you know what our standards here at Grace are. How do we form a biblical position? I want to tell you how we do it. There's some, some characteristics of forming a biblical position. First of all, debate or discussion is not study. Debate or discussion is not study. A discussion might help define the issues, but discussion doesn't form a biblical position on an issue because a discussion can, in horrible circumstances, be reduced to who can yell the loudest. 
That doesn't make you right if you're just louder. Debate has too many other variables. Emotion, time pressure, personality, presuppositions and assumptions that make their way into the discussion. So debate or discussion is not study. Another variable we look at is grammatical and word analysis of major texts is imperative. You have to analyze the grammar. You have to analyze the the words. You have to look at it in its minutia, in its detail. On the bigger picture, another principle is that you have to examine the context of any major text you're using. You can't just throw Bible verses out and say, this is my position. What's the context? What's the authorial intent? We would also say that a, a strong position should be based on multiple reasons from Scripture. We don't base a major theological position on one verse. We don't hang our hat on one peg. We would also say that alternative views should be considered fairly and evaluated. That means assessing the strengths and the weaknesses of alternative views. That's an important part of that process. We would also say that personal stories or anecdotal examples don't constitute a legitimate position. In other words, a leader in the church saying, well, I know an example of someone who, that's not a biblical position. That's a story that you know, and stories don't prove anything. They might strengthen an argument, but they don't form an argument. We would also say there has to be a line of reasoning which can be followed beyond just proof texts. Let me show you what I mean. Let me give you an example close to home for us. If somebody made the argument, we believe in human free will to choose to follow God or not. If that's their argument, here's a typical position for somebody arguing that idea. They would say, well, we believe in human free will to choose to follow God or not because Joshua 24, 15 says, choose this day whom you will serve. We believe this because Matthew eleven twenty eight Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's a choice they're making. And we choose to believe this because in John 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That sounds really good, but that is not actually an argument. It could be a small piece of an argument, But in and of itself, it constitutes nothing more than finding out-of-context verses to support a position you already believed. If you continue testing that position, by the way, against Scripture, it weakens further and further until it collapses completely. Is the statement, we believe in human free will to choose to follow God, true? No, that's false. We believe that God is the author of salvation alone. And that argument is well supported in Scripture. So that argument, that little example I gave you, it's not actually an argument. It's just a bunch of verses thrown at something you already believe. What kind of men should volunteer elders be? Men who continually ask the question, what does the Bible say? That's the only question. What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of expository preaching? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of biblical counseling? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of mentoring another believer to walk with the Lord? What does the Bible say is the core and foundation of directing the church of Jesus Christ? And that is not always easily accomplished in a one or two hour elder meeting. Sometimes it means saying we will study this issue for a period of months. It's very interesting to me that King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah, Jehoshaphat was King Solomon's great-great-grandson, and he certainly wasn't a perfect king, 
But it's interesting who the top officials in his government were. According to Second Chronicles 17, 7, his top five officials that he appointed in government were all Bible teachers. All of them. They were all men capable in the word of God. That was how Jehoshaphat wanted to lead his people. And in fact, three years into his reign, Jehoshaphat sent them to teach the Bible to the people of Judah. In fact, we're going to look at that more tonight. He didn't appoint political leaders. He didn't appoint administrators. He appointed shepherds. And what we're going to see tonight is that the results in Israel were astoundingly positive because they were men who asked the question, what does the Bible say? I said that I would give you Chris Hamilton's second list. Some of the qualities of an effective volunteer elder. But I waited to the end because after I had finished studying Philemon, I looked at his list and it was basically the same thing. So I'll just give you a few. He adds a couple, but it's worth rehearsing this to hammer this home one more time. His second list includes the following of an effective volunteer elder. Integrity. A man who does what he, say, he says he's going to do. He can be relied upon. Love for Christ. That's his motivation above all. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Love for the church. A genuine affection and tenderness toward the bride of Christ. Not just as a whole, but for the individuals in the church. The whole church of Jesus Christ is glorious. According to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says all the individual and, individuals in the church are kind of less than glorious. And so you love the individuals and the whole. He says love for family. An observable love that others can emulate. That you ought to be able to send a, a, a broken family, a, a young family that's, that their marriage is in horrible shape and their kids are unsubmissive and so forth and just say, go watch that guy for a while and you'll see how to do this. Chris Hamilton lists loving loyalty to his pastor, the leader among equals that we talked about last time, that he's not a source of anguish and sorrow but a source of encouragement and motivation. He lists Christ-likeness that he's in pursuit of personal sanctification. He doesn't say, well, now that I'm an elder, I can stop growing. No, he keeps growing. He lists love for the word. A love for the word. Not a a generalized, yeah, I love the Bible, but a love for the word that, that expresses itself in spending time with the Lord personally for his own benefit. He adds to the list, he's a man not afraid to stand firm for Scripture. Not afraid to stand firm for Scripture. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And he is a man who is teachable. He doesn't say, I'm an elder, I have no more learning to do. He sits under the preached word just like everyone else. Well, I hope you see why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, don't be hasty in laying on of hands of ordaining elders. And can I tell you just one last thing? I love the men that I serve alongside. These are the greatest men I have ever known outside of vocational ministry. And my hope for you is I hope you'll show your love and appreciation and thankfulness to your volunteer elders and to your other leaders. They work for the cause of Christ. They work for the love of the church and for the sake of your souls. I know these men well, and all of them have something in common. They only do three things in life. They work, they do their family, and they do the church. That's it. 
I've played golf with some of them. You know what we talk about? <laughs> the church. I hope you'll love them. If you've been in a church with lousy lay elders, you know how horrible that is. I feel we are very blessed. Amen. Let's go to the Lord together and then we'll enjoy the Lord's table. Our Lord, we come to you now thankful for the church of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the men that you have brought to our particular local church. Lord, you have brought great and godly men. May you raise up many more. May this church be a church that that churns out men of God. I pray for young men among us, Lord. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it it is a noble work he desires to do. I pray for even boys among us that they would look ahead and say in 20 and 30 and 40 years, I want to be that man. Would you raise them up, Lord? And now, Lord, most poignantly and most importantly, we come to the Lord's table and we ask you, Lord, to prepare our hearts even now for this most unique, most tender of moments when we remember that the body of our Savior Jesus Christ was broken and tortured and beaten and put on a cross. And we remember that he shed blood for us that was necessary to pay for our sins, to satisfy and assuage the wrath of God. And so in this moment, Lord, we ask you to focus our minds and our hearts on Christ, on the body of Christ, on the blood of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.